You're listening to Trek FM. My first involvement, uh, well, had to be, of course, with Gene and through Gene. He wrote the part of number one first. And uh, then he said, there, are you happy? He wrote the description of number one, and then he wrote the character. So, I mean, the part was, was always mine right from the beginning. Hi, and welcome to Women at Warp. Join us as our crew of four women Star Trek fans boldly go on our bi-weekly mission to explore our favorite franchise. My name is Jera, and thanks for tuning in. Today with us, sadly, Andy is sick, but we have Grace. Hey, everybody. And we have Sue. Hi. Just before we start, I wanted to remind you about our Women at Warp Patreon. You can support us at patreon.com slash women at warp. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash women at warp. And it just helps us basically spread the word about the podcast. Um, we've so far printed some business cards. Um, we've upgraded some equipment and uh, also get out to conventions so that we can do convention reporting and talk to other folks about our podcast and the issues we talk about there. And one of the things that we're working towards is getting us all to Star Trek Las Vegas in August for the 50th. Um, and it's going to be super, super exciting. So thanks to everyone who's supported us so far. If you'd like to support us on Patreon, again, it's patreon.com slash women at work. So today... Uh, we have a really fun, um, interesting topic, I think, which was suggested by one of our patrons, Nick. So thanks, Nick. Uh, we are going to talk about the first lady of Star Trek, Majel Barrett Roddenberry. Um, Majel was the only performer to have a role on all the Star Trek series. Uh, her first role was number one, the female first officer in the original series pilot, The Cage. Um, she was also obviously Jane Roddenberry's wife. Uh, she significantly influenced the direction of Trek from on screen and behind the scenes for more than four decades. Uh, so look forward to talking a bit about her. We're going to try to focus a little bit more on her bio and a little less on uh, going super deep into all the roles she played, um, because we could spend an entire episode certainly on the Laksana, uh, but we will touch on all of them and uh, hopefully have a good discussion. So I think I'm probably, this might even be the same for you two, um, I don't know, but I first became aware of who she was uh, through TNG, through her role as Laksana Troy. Yep, same here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I actually think I became more aware of her um, through voicing the computer because just so many episodes where a special guest, Magil Barrett, and I'm like, who is that? Why does she keep mm -hmm. showing up? And then I <laughs> looked into her and it was like, oh. Yes, so important. The computer voice thing is huge. Yeah. <laughs> um, so Majel Lee Hudek was born on February 23rd, 1932 in Cleveland. She had originally intended to become a legal clerk, but changed her mind and moved to New York to try acting. And she acted in several stage plays before moving to California in the 50s. She earned small parts during the late 50s and 60s in movies and TV series like Leave it to Beaver and Bonanza. And there is a really awesome YouTube clip of her and James Doohan on Bonanza that awesome. I recommend checking out. In 1962, she met Lucille Ball at an acting class, so first Star Trek connection there. And she was signed to a contract with Desilu Studios, which, of course, eventually produced Star Trek. And then she met Gene Roddenberry in 1964 during a guest role for a Marine Corps drama called Lieutenant, which also featured Gary Lockwood and some other folks. I think Nichelle Nichols was on it as well. So they didn't marry until 1969 after Star Trek was canceled and he divorced his first wife. Um, when I started looking into Star Trek in more depth a few years ago, that was the more surprising thing for me because... I had no idea that it was like a scandalous 
sort of relationship. Um, oh, that just makes it more interesting. <laughs> yeah. No, I agree. Because nobody ever, at least, you know, when, when not specifically discussing it, nobody ever really talks about it. Mm-hmm. You know? It's amazing how it's still kind of considered scandalous to that degree. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because apparently they became lovers in 1964. And at that point, he was uh, with his first wife. Um, but he apparently felt, according to These Are the Voyages, that his wife didn't really understand his passion for writing. And uh, Majel was someone who firmly, for the rest of his life, stood behind his passion and his vision, and even carried it on after his death. So, um, The Cage was obviously the first pilot of the original series, and in this, uh, she played a character named Number One, d- described in the uh, show Bible as a mysterious female, slim and dark, expressionless, cool, one of those women who will always look the same between years 20 and dot dot dot. <laughs> to be more specific, actress Majel Barrett, Roddenberry's lover, um, <laughs> is uh, what Mark Cushman adds, and... Uh, well, let's maybe talk about the episode and how we feel about number one before we get into the whole behind the scenes stuff. I love number one. <laughs> I love that we get a lady who's kind of doing the Spock role early on, just yeah. being the super really, really person. She is wearing the pants and she is firing the laser. <laughs> <laughs> and it's kind of implied that she might not be human. Yeah. But she's definitely not from Earth, right? Because Pike is like, well, maybe that's how it is on your planet. Mm-hmm. She's the proto-Spock. I love it. She really is. In this episode, at the end, um, you know, we learn that she's sort of harboring feelings secretly for the captain, but she won't let it compromise her duty. But I think it would have been interesting to see where it went. And there were a lot of people pushing for a number one character to be introduced in the JJ-verse. Yeah, um, that would have been to- cool. Yeah, till well, I mean, there weren't a lot of great, awesome women in charge, so probably could use another woman in any kind of role, but for more than that, listen to our JJ verse episode. <laughs> so before we got into researching this, do you remember what the first thing you heard about what ended up happening and why we didn't get number one in the series? Uh, well, the, the general apocrypha of it is that they were told he could keep the girl or he could t- keep the alien. So he kept the alien and married the girl. At least mm-hmm. that's generally the story that people like to tell. Um, but there are also sources that say they j- that the producers just didn't like her acting very much. So the character was written out and, the, and Spock was given her role, essentially. I think the first time that I heard any real details about it might have actually been um, from Shatner's book. Star Trek Memories, which I Mm. read, I think, in high school, probably soon after it came out. And he actually references focus groups, noting that women viewers felt that she was pushy and annoying and thought that number one shouldn't be trying so hard to fit in with the men. So I think my impression, for as long as I was aware of, of what happened here was that she didn't test well. Yeah, I, I remember reading that in his book as well, actually. Um, but it's interesting because that I haven't seen that really referenced a lot of other places. I definitely had heard the kept the Vulcan and married the woman yeah. quote. Um, she um, There's a, an amazing YouTube video that was a little special that Majel did for Entertainment Tonight 
um, around the time of, I think it was like mid, uh, around the 30th anniversary. And she talks about how women in the series had advanced. And she uh, repeats that about um, basically that NBC was upset that number one was a strong woman character and they couldn't stomach having a woman in command. They also weren't really sure about the Spock character. And so Jean had to choose. And so that's, that's definitely what they were going out saying. It's not really what most of the other people around at the time say. Uh, so Herb Solo, uh, said he remembered them saying looks and then Stanley saying, Christ Herb, this is madness. She's his girlfriend. I remember her hanging around Jean's office at MGM when he was doing the lieutenant for us. So Herb Solo believed the NBC execs resented being put in an awkward position. Um, so basically NBC, um, they felt that Roddenberry was kind of pushing the envelope and trying to do things behind their backs or over their heads or without being totally upfront with them. Be the last time he does that either. No, certainly. And so, um, in these are the voyages, they talk about how, you know, casting her in this role, um, in a, in like a key role was strike four in their tally of like things he had done to kind of piss them off. Start going back to the lieutenant. There's a quote from Herb Solo saying, uh, Roddenberry had conveniently forgotten that NBC execs for both financial and moral reasons had always favored a strong woman as a series star. They just didn't want Majel. They resented having her forced upon them. So I think that it's important to look at that a tiny bit because I think, uh, like, certainly the the view that they were, so Jean and Majel were basically going around saying that, like, the network was sexist and that's why they didn't, that's why they couldn't cast her. And certainly there's evidence that the network in other episodes demanded some things that were debatably sexist or, like, alternately kind of prudish in a way that ended up being sexist, like in Wolf in the Fold. Um <laughs> Not the first time we'd see that either. I mean, These Are the Voyages is really interesting for all of these kinds of contradictions and ways in which um, so many different people were responsible for um, things that were both really progressive at times and then really, unfortunately, not progressive at times. But this idea that like they resented her because she was Roddenberry's mistress is also kind of unfortunate. It showed that she really wasn't seen to have an identity of her own. And her acting ability, therefore, was never really even the main focus. Like, right, the testing, the only place I've ever seen it referenced is, is by Shatner, or somebody referencing Shatner. But uh, when she was interviewed in 1993, uh, Majel Barrett said that Jean never got around to fleshing number one out, so I made up her backstory. I saw her as a genetically bred human from another planet, a place never disclosed. Although she was cloned, I decided that she had grown up in a normal human family kind of atmosphere. She was totally by the book, never smiled, and had most of Mr. Spock's characteristics. So I think that comes through in what we were talking about before. That it's all, Mr. Spock in the cage is like smiling and laughing, and number one is none of that. And then the Spock that we got later was kind of a combination of the two. Proto Spock. Proto Spock. <laughs> All right, so um, moving on, the next time we saw her was as Nurse Chapel, which we've talked a little bit about previously on the podcast. Oh, she's come up once or twice. <laughs> <laughs> she's she's almost the opposite of number yeah, one. Yeah, definitely. In, in a lot of ways. <laughs> and from the sound of it, Magil Barrett seemed to think so anyway. Mm. 
originally the character was called Nurse Christine Duchot. And uh, in These Are the Voyages, it says that Major Barrett had been eyeing this role for some time. Um, and uh, she said, I know I, I, I can do this. I know I can do this. So I went home and immediately bleached my hair. Next morning, I came into Jean's outer office and waited for him. When he got in, he walked by me, sort of half-smiled, and grunted a hello. But when he took a second look at me, he said, Majel, is that you? I said, look, Jean, if I can fool you, I can surely fool NBC. He said, yeah, you're right. Roddenberry saw the character of the ship's <laughs> nurse as being so selfless, kind, and virtuous that she was quite nearly saintly, and he opted for a name change to Christine Chapel, a name play on the Sistine Chapel. I never got that. <laughs> oh, now I feel like a dork for only just realizing that. Why would you bleach your hair and not just buy a wig? <laughs> <laughs> well, and well, I feel like they used wigs in some of the episodes. Like, she doesn't, it doesn't look like it's possibly all her hair, but maybe it is. Also, wasn't there a big complaint about um, limiting the amount of usage of women in the show because it would take up so much of the makeup people's time to do their hair and wigs and stuff? Oh, no. <laughs> So she probably oh, I didn't knew know that. about that, I would think. <laughs> and also it's a, you know, level of commitment, I guess. I yeah. guess. You know, we talked, we've talked in previous episodes about how she didn't really like the character, but I don't know, what were your thoughts when you originally saw her? Like her first episode is What Are Little Girls Made Of? Uh, which is the one with the androids and her ex-fiance. I actually really like What Are Little Girls Made Of? Because just off the bat, we get this idea of, yeah, this is a girl who went into space to look for the guy she was in love with and things just kind of went pear-shaped there. And you kind of are left with that idea of her for the rest of the time you see her on the show, which is which is funny because she doesn't end up being quite as straightforward, as risk-taking as you would like to expect from an initial introduction like that. But the idea that that's kind of what got her into this does resonate and make her uh, at least an interesting dimension to her. And also it's just a really fun, campy episode. It also involves Kirk and the giant penis rock, so... Like I said, fun and campy. <laughs> um, this is actually one of Chapel's stronger episodes, um, even though, you know, the whole premise of her character is basically that she was a doctor, but then decided to go become a nurse so that she could go into space and track down her ex-fiance, and then she spends, like, most of the rest of the time pining after Spock. So I wouldn't necessarily call her a feminist character, but I think in this episode, uh, it's supposed to be portraying her in a positive light as she's this um, capable nurse who is devoted to her job. And when it comes down to it, she isn't going to compromise her principle or her her principles or her loyalty to Captain Kirk um, for this man that she used to love. I just realized I've often heard... Uh... Well, a few times heard the original Star Trek referred to as kind of an early workplace drama, but in the future, in space. And I just realized if Star Trek is the office, that makes Nurse Chapel the Mindy Cowling who just kind of hangs around <laughs> to obsess creepily <laughs> over the guy. Oh, <laughs> awesome. Oh, man. But yes. I, I have appreciated that, at least in the movies, she's referenced as, oh, referenced as Dr. Mm. Chapel. So we at least here even if we don't really get a whole lot more we at least learn that she went back and like finished her her training as a doctor and is now dr chapel yeah and in star trek 4 i think she's uh, referenced as commander chapel but it is cool that they got uh they paid some respect to those characters commander sistine chapel <laughs> bob justman who is the producer and assistant director of the original series in inside star trek the real story him and herb solo 
uh, wrote this book together. And it's another really interesting reference book. It kind of, I remember the first time I read it, I was like, wow, Star Trek behind the scenes was like Mad Men. Pretty um, much, there's yeah. All these discussions of like sort of like sex related pranks that people played on each other, like putting sex dolls in the shower and like no. Michelle Nichols <laughs> popping out from under Gene Roddenberry's desk wearing only a sweater and a smile. Oh and, my god. Uh, like, yeah, it's really like it's fascinating. Uh, a little bit at times a little disturbing, but it's, I think, like a really, it's really necessary to read and realize that. All the, like, this stuff was really, the dynamics were complicated. Um, so Bob Justman says, like, he really didn't like Majel at the time. And I think he, like, blamed her for some of the problems that Roddenberry had with the network. But he said later he realized it wasn't her, he disliked it was the role. Nurse Chapel was a wimpy, badly written, and ill-conceived character. In the naked time, all she did was stand around and pine for Mr. Spock, much the same as Yeoman Rand did for Captain Kirk. And in Little Girls, Nurse Chapel pined for her fiancé, mad scientist Dr. Corby. And later he says that when he saw Haven, the TNG episode where she played Loxana Troy, he said uh, it was a bold and lusty, irreverent and energetic female alien, and she played the part to the hilt. This new character became popular with viewers and with me too. I took pains to tell her of my changed opinion. Yeah. So we have anything else to say on Nurse Chapel? That girl could rock the helmet hair. <laughs> <laughs> Um, there's also the episode, um, uh, for the world is hollow and I have touched the sky where she's like really firm about how she's, she has a quote, I think it's like, I'm a nurse first and a Starfleet officer second. Like I'm, my first duty is to medicine. So she has some, she has some nice moments and there's the episode where she teaches Uhura to read, which is a little bit of a, that's messed up, messed up thing, but it's cool that they showed that they had a friendship. Yeah. And it would have been neat to see that explored in a less bizarre <laughs> situation. Isn't she also teaching her to read Swahili? I don't remember. Swahili <laughs> is definitely part of that scene. And it's like, okay. <laughs> yeah. Well, Uhura's supposed to speak it. Maybe. But apparently not Klingon. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, this, I, I mean, you know, one of the things I really appreciate is... There's so much amazing fan art of Chapel, and I think like even though her character, there were a lot of missed opportunities, and she did often come across as like a really, I guess, uh, maybe not an independent, self-actualized, fully rounded character. Um, it's cool to see how fans have um, recognized her strong values as like a loyal nurse and officer, and uh, someone who is really caring and empathetic and, and sensitive about uh, the people around her. So I think that's cool. All right. But regardless of your feelings on Chapel, the computer voice is the most fun thing ever. <laughs> oh, and luckily, voice. we have Sue here as our resident computer voice. Accurate. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Lord. Sorry. <laughs> I'm, I'm nowhere near up to Majel Barrett caliber (laughs) (laughs) well who can be really oh so she ended up doing the computer voice um through tos except for midway through season three for the episode of wake of an eye the um new um producer fred freiberger 
replaced her with an uncredited actress, feeling that it was problematic for her to be both the computer voice and Nurse Chapel. Because as you can see, so many people noticed mm-hmm. and were weirded out by it. Right, and it <laughs> well, definitely wasn't a problem a few years later when she was half of the <laughs> female characters on the animated series. Yes. Um, and then he but changed we'll get it there. <laughs> if you're paying attention, you really can notice. It feels like the actress in uh, who replaced her was just... I know, kind of lacking that feeling that it's automated. Like, I, I was reading through forums um, about her voice work, and people were saying that they thought it was, like, a computerized voice. They thought that they uh. actually made a computer, like, it was, like, Siri. Uh. Um, they didn't know that it was a woman pretending to be a computer. Precious 1960s viewers. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I think it actually is cool also that it's a woman. because. Yeah, definitely. Um, oftentimes in our culture, we associate, um, femininity with, like, emotion and irrationality, and masculinity is associated with logic and science. And so for a woman to be a computer, um, it, it kind of turns that a bit on its head, and it, it gets to a bit of what we saw with, like, the logical number one that got missed out. Yeah. Uh-huh. Or her last stint as the computer voice was for Star Trek 2009, and a few weeks, I think, after recording that, she passed away. But um, I actually didn't realize that it went that late. So that's really cool. That she, And she did, like, the Star Trek Online and, like, video games and CD-ROMs yeah. and all that kind of stuff. One thing I love, I, I was unable to find an actual source for this, so but I'm still going to throw it out there anyway. <laughs> Apparently, the... Her her voice as a computer voice has become so iconic that when Google started developing what is now known as Google Now, that, that personal assistant you can speak to, um, they had initially codenamed it Google Majel. That's so cool. Isn't that awesome? Yeah. And I mean, she was a computer voice in Family Guy for Stewie on one of his spaceships. You know, yeah, it's his, just his sperm ship. Yeah, she's done um, computer games and I think even a railroad. Yeah, she uh, provided the voice of automated railroad defect detectors for Southern Pacific, Union Pacific, and other railroads starting in the 1980s. Her voice can uh, apparently still be heard on Union Pacific detectors and some other small regional railroads. And this was one of the forums I was reading was people who were like Union Pacific Railroad aficionados. Ah! <laughs> and they were remembering her and then people were being like, oh my gosh, I had no idea that was her. I've totally heard her voice. Um, so that was super cool cool i had no idea about that i mean of course she did like quite a bit of voiceover and acting work outside of star trek throughout her life yeah Um, but that was definitely one of the more interesting fun facts so around uh between season two and season three obviously crap was going down um in tos land and there had been an issue where a lot of fans were requesting merchandise and like autographed photos and the studio both like NBC and Desilu then became Paramount um, weren't really set up to deal with it and they were kind of just like leaving it hanging so Gene started a company called Lincoln Enterprises to basically do Star Trek merchandising and he started um, he basically handed it over to John and Bijo Trimble to run and partly they were doing this hand in hand with the campaign to save Star Trek. So they they ran the campaign to save Star Trek between seasons one and two, and they succeeded. And then uh, he had them working on this. But uh, there were some issues because the 
Trimble's Elise, and so does Harlan Ellison in These Are the Voyages, that really he set up the company for Majel. And so Bijo is actually like quite critical of Majel's attempts to run the company, saying that she wanted everything her way. Um, she wanted to completely re- reorganize everything. For instance, Tribbles would have been a good idea, but she wanted to add Spock ears to them and give them long eyelashes and make them chirp. And we said, no, they won't sell. Well, she ordered them anyway, and I don't know what happened to the poor little things, but they didn't sell. And she would get things like a Star Trek insignia and brilliant rhinestones. And so apparently um, she requested they be fired and Jean fired them. But that's um, what they say in this story. And it sounds like there was some friction going on. Also, she apparently invented Furbies decades before their time. (laughs) But like Roddenberry characterizes it obviously very differently that like when he was asked about this, um, he said that, you know, she was doing stuff ahead of her time. She was um, coming up with ideas that were ahead of their time. And uh, just like people didn't appreciate it. So again, we've got a lot of take every opinion with a grain of salt going on. Mm -hmm. So yeah, B. Joe Trimble and John Trimble, they basically, because of this friction, kind of, they quit the campaign to save Star Trek. So there was like a muted attempt to save Star Trek after the third season cancellation, but they couldn't even bring themselves to do it because they were so kind of disillusioned with Gene and how they felt kind of used by him. So that's unfortunate. Um, They were all kind of tied up in this, but I guess, again, like stuff was complicated and a lot of stuff was going down at that time. So um, during this time, obviously, uh, Roddenberry and uh, Barrett's relationship continued. And um, there's some kind of like, you know, quotes from um, in different books from Bob Justman and Herb Solo and other people who um, kind of felt like it, it should have been more secret that Roddenberry wasn't hiding it very well. And he was inviting them over to um, her apartment for drinks. And he was basically like paying for her apartment. And uh, Bob Justman said, like, I don't want to know about it. I was afraid that someone would find out. Um, he separated from Roddenberry separated from his wife in August 1968. And uh, on August 9th, Roddenberry moved out of the family house and officially separated from his wife. And he had had two daughters with his wife. And in These Are the Voyages, it says he checked into the Century Plaza Hotel, calling wife Eileen from the lobby and telling her he wasn't coming back. Majel Barrett joined Roddenberry that night and stayed with him for the next 23 years until his passing. They were married after the cancellation of Star Trek in a Shinto Buddhist wedding in Japan, uh, partly because neither of them really had a religion and they just happened to be in Japan. Uh, Their son, Eugene Roddenberry Jr., a.k.a. Rod Roddenberry, was born five years later. Um, Have either of you seen Trek Nation? No. Yes. Yeah, that's the documentary that Rod Roddenberry made about, like, trying to come to grips with his father's legacy. And there's definitely a part in that that um, he talks about how he had really complicated feelings about his dad, that his dad, like, bragged about how he was uh, cheating on Majel within weeks of their marriage. And, uh, like, clearly he liked, um, I don't know, I guess, like, salacious. (laughs) Um, (laughs) He liked women. (laughs) He liked having a reputation, too. Yeah. As, like... As Captain Kirk, I actually, um, in Chaos on the Bridge, mm-hmm. where they're talking about, you know, the, the early seasons of TNG and how much stuff there was going on behind the scenes, they're talking about Gene, and when he was making the original series, he saw himself as Captain Kirk. 
you know, this swashbuckling ladies' man. And when he was making TNG, he saw himself as Captain Picard, this, you know, older, wiser man who's imparting his wisdom to the rest of the universe. God, imagine if he'd been in involved with Voyager. <laughs> <laughs> but you can you can see in those characters that are leading the ship how how Gene saw himself. But Trek Nation wow. is definitely worth a watch. It's definitely obviously more about uh, Gene than it is about Majel. But you know, it, it it's a lot about how Rod is dealing with what how he knows his dad as somebody who was not always great to him and wasn't necessarily around, and his feelings about how he treated him and his mother. And hearing from fans all the time, like how great and influential and wonderful his father was, and trying to reconcile those two things. So it's definitely an emotional watch and something mm -hmm. that as fans, sometimes we don't always think about the people who are behind this. Absolutely. That's really interesting about him modeling the captains on himself. I mean, I guess that makes total sense, but I never actually heard that before. And I mean, it's this is one of the issues we have with this is Majel throughout her whole life was a very, very publicly loyal to Jean. And in Trek Nation, Rod doesn't press her to say a lot. And I, I think that there was even um, one of our Facebook commenters said that, you know, in that movie, because she doesn't say a lot about the fans and she's kind of reticent to say really anything that some people saw that as negative um, that she was negative about the fans, but she never said anything publicly other than like total support. So it's, it's hard to say like how exactly she felt, uh, because no one has really tried to like talk to, I don't know, maybe like girlfriends or people she might have confided in. So like, as far as we know, she was just like totally content supporting his Gene's ideas and legacy. Um, so I, we've no way, like I, way to say differently if it was different or not so it's um yeah it's just it's interesting i kind of wish like we had had more like maybe she had ha written a memoir or something that would have been really cool but like we don't know if she felt really upset by this or if she was just like totally this is how stuff goes because you know i was gene's mistress and so i'm yeah she obviously knew that he'd done it before yeah mm -hmm. definitely so we don't know she's um, definitely um in the way they describe, uh, for uh, number one, she is a woman of mystery to a certain degree. Mm -hmm. But you know who's not mysterious? Morass. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I don't know. I think Morass is pretty mysterious. Um, I just was trying to segue there. <laughs> I couldn't think of a good segue. So uh, the animated series in which uh, Majel voiced like half the women characters, everyone who wasn't voiced by Nichelle Nichols. Right. <laughs> voiced the um, other half. I mean, of course we got Chapel, and we got Maress, who I'm going to have to keep practicing that. <laughs> Does that even sound like her at all? <laughs> I don't know, but I think you should keep doing it. <laughs> all right. All right. We're taking crazy cat women to a new level. Yes. If you can do a good impression of Morass, you should record it and send it to us. And then we can use that as like our new, if we accidentally swear on the episode, we can use that to like bleep it, it out. Um, Morass is like obviously my all-time favorite because she's, yeah, she's a cat woman. Um, she's a Cation, I guess. And uh, she is hilarious and amazing. And you can't even say more than that. She's just amazing. 
Um, is it like, isn't there the episode where um, they all kind of, it's sort of like Naked Timey of the animated series, and she's like, she's really into someone? I can't remember. Naked anyway. Timey is a description. I just love that she's always purring. Oh, right. It's in the, it's in Mud's Passions where they have oh the, gosh. the like drug released. We've talked about this in the yes, Mud episode. Yes. Um, and uh, Maress is like hitting on sulu or something anyway i have to rewatch all of these and you should listen to saturday morning trek which is the new trek fm podcast about the animated series because it's also great uh she also voiced the computer and several other notable characters including amanda grayson in yesteryear and in our matriarchies episode we talked about the lorelei signal in which majel voices the main woman praying mantis character fila um, she also did the Queen of Hearts in Once Upon a Planet. Yeah. <laughs> so as you can see, she was given a tremendous range of roles. Yes, Captain. How do you, like, make a purr into a yes? It's an art. It's it's an art, okay. I guess. clearly voice acting is an actual skill <laughs> that I do not <laughs> possess. <laughs> no. Oh, no. <laughs> All right. Um, so, and next, uh, we have Loaxana Troy, and I love, love talking about Loaxana, and as we stated in our last episode, I think we are going to do a whole episode on her at some point. Yeah. Yes, please. Rachel from Facebook, uh, wrote us a comment, uh, saying, I love her. I think Loaxana is fabulous, and I roll my eyes at people who accuse her of being annoying or unnecessary. She's always fun, and she's got so much more depth to her. The whole point of her flamboyantness is that she's trying to hide all the pain inside her, and I think that's brilliant. So pretty good summation. This might be weird, right? (laughs) A weird connection I'm about to draw. But I feel like other than Golden Girls, (laughs) Waxana gives us like one of the first older, quote unquote, women on TV who is not just there to be somebody's mother. Like she has her Mm -hmm. own motivations and she is interested in having relationships and not afraid to hide it and she has a libido and she knows what she wants and goes after it it's true after a certain age we're kind of socially taught that women become irrelevant once they stop being sexy they just aren't interesting as characters anymore and that's part of why i love luxana we get this great anti-mame and space character rather than someone who's just you know little old lady Right. We get a loud old lady. It's great. Not that she stopped being sexy. Hell no. <laughs> no. And now I want her to just be in the Golden Girls. That would be so, so great. We did the Star Trek parody of Golden Girls with like Laksana and maybe Admiral Necheyev and uh, Philip <laughs> I need a yeah. fourth one. <laughs> Uh, in Admiral there. Janeway, like, wait, like, feature <laughs> Admiral Janeway. <laughs> uh, I was like, wait, who else would you even get? Like, we don't get a lot of older women. You're totally right about that. Yeah. Not even on track. And, um, it, you know, Majel um, is among a few Trek stars. Um, Barbara March, who played Lursa, um, has also talked a lot about the ageism she experienced in Hollywood um, over 40. And Majel has as well. She said that, you know, later in life, she really experienced ageism trying for roles and her agents were basically like, just give up. And in Starlog in 1995, she said, um, though that she's become a role model for older women, she said, I get yelled at from across parking lot at 
parking lots and markets. You've done more for women over 40 than anything that has ever happened in the United States. And she says, wow, (laughs) I wasn't aware of that, but I guess that's the way women over 40 feel. Loxana is a woman who's just beginning to live and goes out and proves it with wild abandon. She enjoys a no holds barred attitude, which I admire tremendously. I love her for it. Um, she also said in the same Starlog interview, I see Loxana as totally off the wall with a total disregard for everything, but she does have memories. She's a whole person and things do get through to her. She's an extremely sensitive person. It's just that she, that it takes something to get through to that sensitivity. Then she lets loose with all of that too. She can't hold anything back, even the tragedy, the tears, the warmth. I think that is accurate. And it's pretty true to life. Absolutely. The most flamboyant people are usually the ones who've got the most to celebrate and the most to mourn. I know there's like a bit of a divide about Loxana and like some people wish that she had just stayed like a purely comic character like she is in Haven, her first appearance. Uh, but to do that would be to waste the character entirely. To keep the character yeah. one note would be both a disservice to the character that she had the potential to be and to the actress. Um, and I think like Bob Justman was saying, like Loxana really showcases her acting ability more than any of her other track roles. She says that in Menage a Troy, um, I got to do a little more, but Loxana was still a very one-dimensional character. Still, it started the character branching out. I mean, I liked her as one-dimensional, but it was just off the top of my head. It wasn't until the next four episodes that the character really took root to me. And her favorite episode uh, was Half a Life for TNG. Which is a very good which episode. Which I just watched. Yeah. And all the feels. Oh, man. Yes. I mean, she is wonderful in that, and that is exploring some themes in Star Trek that we saw a little bit in TOS, but definitely how people treat the elderly is is a little bit of a new thing for Star Trek. But the one that makes me think of Loxana and her vulnerability and her emotion is Dark Page. Oh, definitely. Yeah. You know, and she's going through... There are points where it's a very hard to watch episode. Yeah. And there it, isn't she... She's going through something like in the, the Betazoid life cycle where she just is, is having a problem controlling the emotions and, and the memories that come up. Right. And we're learning brand new things about this character, and it's just heartbreaking. Yeah, absolutely. I And it's also obviously a strong, uh, a moment of like strong female bonding with her and Troy. I kind of liked, though, in Half a Life that Troy is kind of peripheral, and she, she comes in to support her mother. And it, it's really interesting because basically Luaxan is like, well, this isn't your prime directive. I'm not going to stand by and let this man who I'm in love with, um, but also who's a brilliant man who could save his planet from catastrophe, I'm not going to let him kill himself. And there's some amazingly touching moments between her and David Ogden's Ogden Steers. It's a fantastic performance. <laughs> I think like the moment where I get the tears is when basically he comes and he's like, basically, do you believe I love you? And she's like, yes, but it isn't enough, is it? And he's like, it's almost enough Uh. and and like uh and she hugs him and they're crying and i'm just so moved like she comes in her usual like brash steamrolling over everything just like throwing herself um into the situation and like forcing uh him to interact and to go outside his comfort zone and she ends up basically realizing she has to respect his wishes and his culture, even though she really fundamentally disagrees with it. And uh, that like Troy respects how she's feeling and isn't like you were wrong. Like she wasn't wrong. She was just 
taking a stronger stance than anyone else was. Anyway, I really love that episode. I love Dark Page as well, um, but uh, Half-Life was also really, I think, the first one where we started to see that she could play that more serious role. Uh-huh. Um, in Deep Space Nine, uh, we got some more Loaxana. Yay! After, and we get to see her after we've gotten this level of... Uh, dimensionality added to her which is fun because then we get to revisit the character in another setting but with all of this uh backstory and all of this again dimension that we didn't get to see her with before when we first saw her on tng yeah um in the official star trek fan club of canada magazine in 1993 uh majel said uh Laxan has the unlikely position of being roaming ambassador of protocol for the federation which is the worst possible job for her because she's a Betazoid. She reads minds, therefore she cannot lie. Back on Beta Z, there's no such thing as lying because everybody reads minds. There's no diplomacy in this woman whatsoever. <laughs> she starts out playing shallow, but she's smart and she knows right from wrong. Gradually, she's gaining warmth and dimension. I love the Deep Space Nine episode called The Forsaken about her affair with Odo, which ran the full gamut of emotions. You laughed and cried with both of them. I remember she Ugh. loves diplomacy because everyone dresses so well. <laughs> <laughs> oh, right. That's in Half a Life, too. Yeah. <laughs> and she's also, like, going to press the photon launchers and stuff. <laughs> well, like you would. Which, in a few episodes earlier, because I also watched Data's Day today, Riker yeah. sits yeah. on and it's not a problem. Yeah. <laughs> Yes, I was looking at screencasts of that thing about how, like, Riker's flirting with someone and just, like, sitting on the photon launchers. <laughs> We'd like to think if they've uh, come up with a prevention for butt dialing, they have a prevention for butt launching of torpedoes. Well, I'm assuming it's, like, today's touch screens, yeah. where if you're wearing gloves, it wouldn't work. So, like, if you're wearing pants, it wouldn't work. <laughs> you couldn't just launch it with your butt. But uh, even still, I feel like you, you know should have to do... You know that someone is tried, and you have to imagine the situations that led to the testing out of that kind of technology. But I, I still feel Riker. like it should at minimum be, like, your photon torpedo should be more locked than my iPhone. <laughs> wow. At minimum, it should require Worf's fingerprint, or forehead print, if Klingons don't have fingerprints. Can you imagine him just having to rub his head on the screen, though, just to turn it on? <laughs> Amazing. Mr. Worf. <laughs> It's worth madam. I also, I love uh, Menage Troy where she makes Picard, like, recite Shakespearean stuff to her. <laughs> I know, maybe not uh. Sue's favorite episode, but it's hilarious. <laughs> I love it so much. Yeah. But and he just, everybody he's wins. so great when he's forcefully overacting it. <laughs> I know. It's so amazing. But yeah, The Forsaken is um, her first appearance on Deep Space Nine, and that's the one where she's, like, really down and... Like, Kira and Dax come out of the holodeck, and they've been playing Camelot, and made, uh, Luaxana ends up, like, depressing everyone. <laughs> um, but it is a really nice episode, and I think that Odo kind of suffered from a bit of the one-dimensionality that Luaxana did until Luaxana came in, and then you get to see sort of his vulnerable side yeah. and how he's like putting up this tough side because he doesn't understand how to relate to people and it's like basically a performance and then we get to see her kind of connect with him on that level of a lot of what people do is a performance a lot of what i do is a performance because that's who i want to be mm-hmm. yeah it's um yeah it's really nice and he how he like he feels really insecure about having to go into his liquid state and so she takes off her wig and shows him like i'm i'm not presenting who i actually am too like we're all putting on a performance yeah so even it's, without it's cool. even without her telepathy she can see that from miles away 
that character. And yeah. if she decides she's going to break down your wall, you really don't have a choice. Yep. So she did two more episodes of Deep Space Nine. The last one was The Muse. And she actually co-wrote the story. She got a story credit on it because she pitched to Iris Stephen Bear that Loaxana should come back pregnant and claim the baby as Odo's. That isn't exactly what ended up happening. Thankfully. We do get to the see Odo that- in a shotgun wedding, though, which is worth the price of admission. <sighs> it's, it's a little odd. Like, I'm glad... I actually, uh, I don't know. I'm not really a fan of the muse because I feel like at the end of Fascination, she basically is like, okay, Odo, you're in love with Kira. Good luck with yeah. that. Um, that's the one where she comes on and they're having the Gratitude Festival and she goes into Betazoid menopause and like the whole station goes madly in love with each other. <laughs> like you do. But uh, then in the muse, she comes back and she's asking for Odo's protection because she's pregnant and if the child is, is it if the child's a boy or just the child is going to be taken away? From well, she knows it's a boy, so it's going to be taken away from her. Oh, right. So it's a, yeah. So she knows the child is a boy and her husband's people have a belief that the boy should be like raised exclusively by the father's people. So she will basically not see her son once it's born. And so she asks for Odo's help. Unfortunately, I feel like this is the least resourceful we've seen her. And I kind of, I don't like the fact that her last episode is an episode where she really is relying on Odo to rescue her. Um, And she really is playing a role that is about telling us more about Odo. It seems out of character for Luxana too. Yeah. I definitely have no issues with Majel's acting or anything. Um, It's also like the the A plot of this episode with Jake and the sex writing goddess. And that is so (laughs) creepy on so many levels. Slash succubus (laughs) is... uh, very weird. So it's a little bit of a weird episode all around. That episode puts the suck in succubus. Odo basically has to fake that he's in love with her, but it's not really faking. It's not, uh, but he has to, uh, he has to marry her and he has to convince her husband that he is in love with her. So he makes this big statement about how important she is to him. And it really is more about him than it is about her. Um, except for that it does show she's made a you know, strong impact on someone's life. So I'd like seeing her in Deep Space Nine separate from Troy, but um, I wish that it had ended on a note where she had a bit more command of the situation versus being like fleeing someone and having to rely on Odo's help. So uh, post Deep Space Nine, uh, like we mentioned, she continues to do the computer voice work. Um, she also continued to co-operate the Roddenberry production company, Lincoln Enterprises. Um, and then once uh, her son Rod got older, he uh, took that on jointly with her. She was also just really loved by the fans. She attended at least one major convention every year until her death. And like I said, she really took on, saw herself as like the steward of Jean's legacy. Uh, she developed the shows Earth Final Conflict and Andromeda, two Canadian-produced sci-fi series, using his ideas and materials from his archives. And uh, so she was the executive producer of both of those, I believe. Mm-hmm. And she continued other acting um, throughout Trek and beyond. Um, so including she guest starred as the widow of the Centauri ambassador in the Babylon 5 episode Point of No Return. Um, and we mentioned the sperm ship on Family Guy. <laughs> There's a huge list of acting credits if you look on Memory Alpha or IMDb. Um, a lot of voice work, a lot of um, small parts and TV movies and TV shows. And she basically, yeah, she had a lot to do. And she, like I said, she was really loved by the fans. 
That's what makes her a first lady, I guess. Yeah, so she sadly died of leukemia fairly suddenly um, on December 18th, 2008. Um, she had been the one with the idea to launch Jean's ashes into space uh-huh. and had planned to have a portion of their ashes because there was a- only a vial of his ashes were sent into space. The plan to have um, a vial of both of their ashes together launched after her death. So the last that I was able to find out that that flight was, like the space flight was delayed and it's set to happen this year. So... Hopefully that's still the case, because I think it's a lovely gesture. Um, and I just have a couple quotes from Rod Roddenberry about his mother. The first one is from a video blog that he made for the fans after his mother's death. And you can tell he's really heartbroken and grappling with the loss of both parents. So maybe, Sue, do you want to read that one? Absolutely. So he said, when my mother was at a convention, she would sit there and sign for two, three, four hours. She would look up at each individual and communicate, and it was a genuine kind of interest. She was just a real person. Mm-hmm. And another quote that I found from him um, on Wikipedia, I'm not sure exactly when he said it, but he said, my mother truly acknowledged and appreciated the fact that Star Trek fans played a vital role in keeping the Roddenberry dream alive for the past 42 years. It was her love for the fans and their love in return that kept her going for so long after my father passed away. <sighs> So, any final thoughts on Majel Barrett, the first lady of Star Trek? Well, one thing I I read today, and we actually sort of zoomed right by it, or I would have mentioned it earlier, is that she didn't only meet Lucille Ball in an acting class, is she actually got comedic training from Lucille Ball. And I think that's not necessarily as evident in TOS, but when you watch Loxana Troy knowing that, there's you can see it. It's it's maybe not like, oh, that's Lucille Ball, like when if you if you didn't know it in advance, but once you do, you definitely get yeah, it. Yeah. Most definitely. <laughs> yeah, I didn't know that. Um another thing I actually forgot to mention is there's evidence, even though it isn't as well documented yet, uh, because we don't have a these are the voyages equivalent for TNG yet. Um, we do have, you know, the great Star Trek TNG companion by Larry Nemechek, um, but not like quite that same level of detail, although I understand it is in the works, um, that Majel was influencing things behind the scenes in also subtler ways. Uh, Marina Sirtis was interviewed on Mission Log podcast and um, at Star Trek Las Vegas last year, she again repeated the story about how um, she said she was going to be fired from TNG. And it was only the fact that Denise Crosby left that meant that she didn't lose her job. And um, she said that it was Majel who told her that, you know, you better start going to conventions and building up a fan following really early on, like maybe even before the series had started, being like, how many conventions are you going to? You need to be going to more conventions. Um, and told her that basically there was a thought that there were too many women on the show and they aren't doing enough. So <laughs> we're going to have to get rid of one of them. And that it was probably going to be her because all she was doing was sitting around and being like, I feel pain. So um, she started on Majel's advice to, you know, start to go to conventions. And uh, her view was that if Denise Crosby had not left, she still would have been cut. So um, it just goes to show that like Majel was shaping the direction of things in informal ways um, throughout uh, at least early TNG. I mean, I, I'm assuming that once Jean passed away, like it would have been harder, but um, yeah. it, it'll be interesting once we get that kind of behind the scenes look at TNG to see yeah, uh, what kind of influence she maintained beyond his death. 
Well, we do know that Luxana remained around beyond his death. And and honestly, that's sort of around the time that we learned more about Luxana and saw that character really start to grow. So I think that, you know, obviously she at least started in Star Trek because of this relationship with Gene Roddenberry, but she remained in it, I think, because of, for, for her own merits, as it should be. Absolutely. I think that's what separates her from just being the show runner and show create the franchise creator's wife to the being the first lady of Trek. Mm-hmm. I mean, she really, I mean, in some ways, like she, like a first lady, she took it on as a ceremonial role as well yeah. as just I'm this guy's wife that she, you know, the fact that she was running uh, Lincoln Enterprises and doing this merchandising work, she was um, trying to steer the casting, she was um, attending all of these conventions and speaking over and over again about uh, Jean's legacy and ideas and uh, how visionary they were that, yeah, it speaks to how she saw this as something bigger than just, you know, an acting job. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thanks for joining us today to talk to, about Majel Barrett. But this is just one of the topics being discussed on the Trek FM network recently. So here's a quick look at some of the other things you may have missed elsewhere on Trek FM. We also wanted to let you know about the Trek FM Patreon. Trek FM is a listener-supported network. You can help us keep the Star Trek discussion coming by pledging a donation at patreon.com slash trekfm. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm. Every little bit helps keep this Trek FM podcast up and running. So once you're done with the show, again, please consider hopping over to patreon.com slash trekfm. Previously on Trek.fm, Earl Grey. Jordy is the one that's like, you know what? No, you're wrong. You're wrong about Data. I'm going to drop a challenge right here, and Data's totally going to step up to the plate, and you're going to get served, Plasky. And that's how LaForge created Moriarty. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not saying it turned out good, but I mean, he had good intentions. The Orb. The Wadi, a fun-loving race from the Gamma Quadrant, arrive at DS9 eager to play a game with Cisco and the crew, one that appears to be a matter of life and death. All right, so are we moving along, Matthew? Oh, we're moving along. <laughs> Is there any redeeming value? The ready room. He's carrying in the lamb chop sock puppet <laughs> saying, she stayed at her post. <laughs> While Charlie Horse ran. <laughs> <laughs> While Charlie Horse ran. <laughs> to the journey! It feels like I just won an Oscar and an Emmy and a Tony. All at the same time. And a People's Choice Award. And a Nickelodeon Award. Dang. So, yeah. So not quite an EGOT, but close. <laughs> Commentary, Trek Stars. I haven't seen Mean Girls. You haven't seen Mean Girls. I oh know. Everybody wants me to see oh Mean Girls. Oh, my God. Yeah, you have to see Mean Girls. I mean, after yeah. Josie and the Pussycats, though. Oh, I see Josie the Pussycats. The 602 Club. I actually like when they bring in the big container for the brain fish at the beginning. That's so weird. <laughs> and yeah, it, it, really it opens mysterious. up and it's, you know, speaking through the... And all the minions that have the, to mop up after it at the end. Yes. Yeah, yeah I thought yeah, that was pretty no. funny. All the, it's like a slug trail. Um, you can actually see one of the guys while he's talking, kind of wandering around, mopping up. I was like, yeah. what is that guy doing? Literary Treks. You're totally right that when Atonement was done, I really did feel like um, everybody needed a break. Like a Not Kit Kat that- bar? There wouldn't be challenges and obstacles and things, but I wanted the the next sort of series of adventures that they faced for a while to be 
more infused with the sense of wonder that sort of underpins all of Trek. Women at Warp. A F, which are the initials that Picard carved into Boothby's tree back on Starfleet Academy, and that is how he met Boothby the groundskeeper. Well, we never did learn Boothby's first and second name, did we? <laughs> it was all a ploy to get to hang out with Boothby. Meta Trex. If I look at the Abrams verse now, having talked it out, it seems like they're both an alternate timeline and uh, and an alternate reality at the same time. Not every sense of alternate timeline, not every sense of alternate reality, but there's at least one sense in which they overlap and you can say you can have your cake and eat it too, and, and the Abrams verse is both at the same time. Melodic Treks. I wanted something for the chorus, you know, a phrase uh, describing them, which is uh, amazing. And I wanted to use a different word for that, uh, for amazing. And in this case, I, I, I sought out the, the African Swahili word, uh, kushengeza, which is an actual word that means amazing. And introducing Saturday Morning Trek, a show about the animated series and all things Trek in the 1970s. Chekhov was in the first season, but he was working on the third deck behind the boiler room and was ill with a condition called Malaprovsky's malady, which is a kind of 23rd century version of Montezuma's revenge, and was hidden in the bathroom, ensconced there for hours and hours, while poor Mr. Connor's genetically engineered kidneys about to explode, pounded pitifully on the door, begging to be let in, until finally the door opens, Chekhov steps out, Khan looks at him and says, Your face, I remember. That's the best explanation I've ever heard. (laughs) You get, you get the idea that I've told this story before. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. Grace, where can people find you on the internet? People can find me on Twitter at BoneCrusherJank, or they can read my writing on the Mythcreants blog, or listen to my previous podcast, All Things Trek. And Sue, how about you? You can find me on Twitter at Spaltor, that's S-P-A-L-T-O-R, or uh, podcasting and blogging over at AnomalyPodcast.com. And I'm Jarrah, and you can find me at TrekkieFeminist.tumblr.com. If you'd like to contact our show, you can find us on Facebook at Women at Warp, on Twitter at Women at Warp, and you can email us at crew at womenatwarp.com, or you can go on iTunes and leave us a review, or you can go to our website, womenatwarp.com. Uh, we'd love to hear from you. Uh, we love getting listener mail and comments on our Facebook and our Twitter. Uh, let us know what you think about the show. And let us feel the love. Yes. And uh, live long and prosper.